The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Hello and welcome along. Vend has come up many times over the last hundred episodes. It's really the reason I'm doing this podcast as it was there I came to really love all the elements of business. Because it was a very special place. From the values, don't be a dick, just fucking do it, through to the fact it was like a family and one hell of a ride. The fastest growing tech company in the country with the ups and downs that entails. And it all started with founder Vaughan Rousel. It wasn't his first rodeo, but we'll get to that. He's well known for his amazing yearly challenges, like riding around the world, giving up beer, running a thousand kilometres. You might have seen the TEDx talk. And recently, he's also been getting more involved at both ends of the industry, with work as Deputy Chair of the High Tech Trust, helping pull together the great theme on diversity at this year's awards. And he also co-founded OMG Tech, the programme that gives underrepresented kids access to the most interesting tools of the future. He's also a mate. I've been lucky enough to get to know him over a few years and see what he does up close, and it's the exact same thing he does in public. So it's a great pleasure to have Vaughan Rousel on the show. G'day. G'day, mate. Hey, thanks for coming along. You forgot to mention the moustache. The moustache. Which I'm quite happy about, because I'm quite happy to distance myself from the facial hair. Like, I'm more than my facial hair. (laughs) I'm more. Um, So tell me, how did you come, let's go right back to the beginning. How was it you came to be in software, and what did that have to do with your mum? Oh, I feel like that's a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> you know me too well, Simon. Um, yeah, I've always been a geek. Well, not probably not always, since I was 10. And um, that was when my mum brought home a PC back in the dark ages of the 80s when PCs weren't really a thing. You know, they weren't really personal computers. They were just big blocks of circuitry that you plugged into a TV um, and did amazing things. And, uh, yeah, I still remember that day when um, we got that first PC. It was a Sega SC3000. And, yeah, just started a new thing, which was like this passion for understanding how to make the magic inside a computer work. And um, after that, you know, it was many, many computers. There was PCs and Commodore 64s and all that sort of stuff. Um, And, you know, what was quite unusual about this story, because, you know, you talk about computers now, we've all got one in our pocket, but back then... Um, they were really expensive. Nobody had them. Nobody even un- understood what you could do with a computer. Um, and uh, but my mum, she just went to the bank, took out a loan. She was, uh, you know, solo mum, unemployed, in a wheelchair, paraplegic, 
Um, had no idea what these computers were, but she thought they were pretty cool and maybe they'd be a big thing. And so, you know, that single gesture has meant for the last <coughs> 30 or so years <laughs> I've been playing with computers and I think it's put me in a pretty good place. Yeah, and a number of members of the family have made a career and living out of, out of the future that she spotted there. Yeah, so three boys and we've, we, we all entered the the uh, inter careers in, in IT as it was known back then or you know software or um, so yeah we've all done pretty well out of it mm. and that career like in the early days because Vend is very well known uh, now in the industry but Vend wasn't your first rodeo was it and um, I, I, I looked into kind of the, the thing that you established first your first big kind of startup venture uh, and that was it's kind of like Airbnb before Airbnb yeah, so we did this thing uh, called Vinet. Um, oh my god, you know, fifteen. Oh no, maybe not. Yeah, may, maybe long time ago now. Um, and uh, the idea was really simple. It was this platform that anybody could list any form of accommodation on, whether it was a hotel, motel, spare room, caravan, yacht, um, and it had this banking system behind it. So you know, all of the transactions were trusted and secure so you could feel safe in booking somebody's caravan in Raglan and knowing that you would turn up and you know the, the caravan would be there and it'd be a great experience and if it wasn't you know either a great experience or the caravan wasn't there you'd 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 um, be uh, safe in knowing that you'd get your money back and so we built this m massive banking platform we built uh, um, this accommodation booking engine we built this mapping platform this is before Google Maps mm -hmm. so we built this we built Google Maps. Oh, my God, I've built so many things. Um, and, uh, and these were the heady days of, like, you know, when the internet was, you know, people were just kind of figuring out all the cool things you could do. Like, you could build this online mapping platform, um, you know, before then, before Google Maps, it was paper map books. Um, and we built this accommodation booking engine. And before then, it was you rang the local motel or, you know, you went to... Um, uh, lastminute.com or one of those online hotel booking sites. Well, you drove around and saw which sign said vacancy and no vacancy. Yeah, yeah. and discovered this thing called the Duty Motel. So when you drive into Taranaki and you, you, you pull up to a motel and for some reason there's a rugby game on so all the motels are busy, um, our motel in, um, in, in that town will be the designated Duty Motel. And so it's their job to ring around all the other motels to try and find a spare room <laughs> so you could have a night to stay. Um and so, yeah, we thought, oh, this sounds like a good thing to disrupt. And so, yeah, we built this platform. Um, it was called Vionet. And then we started licensing it out to other people. And we licensed it out to Trade Me, and that became Travelbug. Um, so it's been through, you know, Travelbug's had a few um, iterations. Um, and, you know, we were raising lots of money. And uh, we built uh, a, this, uh, a big product team. And we built it up in Kerikeri, which was kind of unheard of back in then. It's like build a product and engineering team up somewhere where there's you know, a good quality of life and, yep. you know, um, shock to the locals because then all these Aucklanders and Americans started <laughs> rocking into town, putting the real estate prices up. Sorry about that, Kerry Kerry. Um, and it was great. It was an amazing time. But then um, the GFC hit and, you know, the, 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 you know, the investors uh, started closing their checkbooks because they had checkbooks back then. They gave us paper checks. Um, and uh, and and yeah, that was the the first ride on the the big startup roller coaster, you know, where everything's going so amazingly well until it's not. And then you know, um, you know, we had big aspirations to go global, but then the capital 
um, you know, we had no access to capital anymore. GFC hit biggest financial you know crisis in in our generation's you know lifetime. Um, and man, that was yeah, it was it was hard. You know, um, you know the uh, you know don't tell anybody. Nobody's listening to this, right? But you know the um, you know the, the the known story is that you know we were acquired by Trade Me, but you know you know, and, and I'm sure Sam or anybody in Trade Me at the time you know doesn't mind. The, the the story being known it was like it was it was a fire sale like we we had burnt all the cash um and um we were just looking for any way to survive and so you know we sold out to trade me um which meant i get you know i worked with the trade me team for a while and that's how i actually got to know sam um you know even though it was you know it was an exciting time and then it was a terrible time um it it meant um you know, I've had a long-standing relationship with Sam and, and the rest of the Trade Me team ever since. Yeah, and and then Sam and Rowan, uh, so Sam Morgan, uh, probably known to most listeners uh, of uh, Trade Me fame, and Rowan Simpson, who was a very uh, important figure in the product team there that you would have been um, working with and getting to know as well. They ended up being your first port of call with with Venn. So, uh, what, what what was it that um, yeah? What what happened between those two points? Uh, I rode the length of New Zealand on a bicycle. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, once I, um, you know, once I stepped away from, uh, Vinet slash travel bug, um, I took a couple of, you know, probably, a, I think it was a couple of years. I just did bits and bobs and had to think about, you know, what I wanted to do next. Um, cause that was a wild ride and I needed some decompression and, um, came up with this idea of another, you know, software startup idea. Um, and, you know, I was getting kind of excited about it, but then I was also, you know, still had the fresh scars um, from doing um, Vionet. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll jump on a bicycle and ride the length of New Zealand and think about it. And at the other end of the bike ride, if I still want to do this crazy idea, then I'll do it. Um, and so, um, so I did that. I flew down to Invercargill and took a ferry over to Stewart Island and you know, rode around Stewart Island for about 30 minutes because there's only about two kilometers of road. <laughs> <laughs> and then um then got on the ferry and went back and and started riding north from the bottom to the top and along the way i dropped you know sam and rowan and basically anybody else i could think of a line to say hey i'm probably going to be cycling through your town soon <laughs> or in a couple of weeks depending on how far away they were um how would you like to join me on a bike ride and you know you know ride with me a day and i was raising money for the for a charity as as i went and um yeah, wow, that was such a cool experience, you know, just being alone on a bike, you know, with nothing but your bags, and then, you know, waking up every day with only one thing on your mind, which is like, how the fuck am I going to get to that next town, <laughs> which is 100 kilometers away um, through rain or shine. And, and you weren't a um, weekend warrior, you weren't a mammal, a middle-aged no. man in Lycra, you weren't a big cyclist or anything, were you? This was like a, quite a... a, a, a a different thing for you to be doing. I just spent the last 10 years being a software engineer. So I was fat and you know, unfit, but I knew I knew, I knew I knew how to ride a bicycle. So it's like riding a bicycle. It's you just get on a bike and it's just like riding a bicycle. And so, um, yeah. And you know, lost uh, a ton of weight, lost 20 kgs or something, um, you know, through that whole adventure. But yeah, like getting ready for that bike ride, you know, it started with, can I ride a bike for, you know, an hour and then I was like can I ride a bike for an hour and then ride up a hill and then I was like can I ride up a hill without vomiting <laughs> and then it was can I do that for like 
many hours. And then when I, once I got to the point where I was like, you know, I could ride a bike for like, you know, three or four hours up hills, you know, um, this was up in Kirikiri. Kirikiri's pretty, Kirikiri's a pretty hilly place. So I picked all the nastiest hills and just, you know, for weeks and weeks, just rode up and down them vomiting in bushes um, to the point where I didn't vomit. And then I thought, yeah, I'm ready. Let's, let's go to Mugago. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, while doing that, you thought, jeepers, even getting back on the startup roller coaster has got to be better than riding in the rain outside of Waiuru. Uh, so, so what, what, what happened then? Like, what was the insight for Vend and, and putting point of sale, which was a very um, manual uh, legacy desktop kind of thing into the cloud? Yeah. So um, the actual original idea for Vend was something quite different. It, uh so I had this idea to build a social app that would allow you to find um, retailers and products near, nearby, which today sounds quite trivial. It's like, shit, Google Maps does that. Um, but I wanted to be able to tap into the social graph. So, you know, if you wanted to buy um, a new pair of trainers, you, you could see everybody else in your social graph that had bought trainers recently and their reviews and you know and then you could find retailers who had inventory of those trainers and, and your color and size um and and this just didn't exist um and so i thought oh well, this this sounds like an opportunity i'll build that um and then i started digging into how would you build it how would you get all the information uh, on all the transactions and all the product inventory and and all that sort of stuff in the retailers and um realized well i thought well all of this must sit in point of sale systems. Like that computers, retailers use computers in their stores. They must be able to connect them to the internet and, uh, and share all this information. Um, and so then worked with a bunch of retailers, looked over their counters and was you know shocked to see that, you know, a lot of them were using cash registers. And if they were using computers, it was software that was written in the nineties and, you know, just there was zero innovation and there had been no innovation for, you know, decades. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll build a better point of sale and, and I'll build it on the cloud. And then that way it will make building this other thing really, really easy. Um, and so I started there. And so that was where the idea for Venn came. And so built the world's first online point of sale platform. And uh, been doing that for eight years since and haven't quite gotten around to the other idea yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and there, was, there was a new kind of tool out called the iPad that popped up and it turned out to be the first point of sale on ipad as well like uh, yeah. able to work there and that's an amazing thing because you kind of think about these things you know everyone the fastest thing in the world is people taking things for granted mm. but you know google's only a dozen years and change and you, you know the, the ipad's only eight years old you know it's it's remarkable how how recent all of these things are mm. yeah um and it was just really good timing well uh you know, this is the number one piece of advice I give to a lot of, you know, a lot of young entrepreneurs, you know, with great product ideas. And it's like, you know, you, your biggest challenge ahead of you is getting the timing right. Because you may have the best idea, but if the market's not ready for it, then, you know, you could be a long, cold winter whilst you're waiting for the market to catch up. Or inversely, you're too late. You know, somebody else is kind of beating you to it. Um, but then once you get the idea and you get the timing right, then it's execute, 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 you know, go as fast as you can. So we we were, not that I believe in luck, but, you know, there was def, a definite element of what you would call luck. You know, we were the first to do the cloud-based retail platform, quickly followed by many, many others uh, once we proved how it could be done. And then the iPad came along. And so, and the way that we had built it, 
um, meant that it was actually really trivial for us to port it over to the iPad. And so we were, we were able to claim that title of being the, the first POS on, on the iPad. And at that moment, it exploded. So yeah. all these people all around the world were setting up coffee stores and shops and thinking, oh, I wish there was a nicer way to do this and Googling iPad POS software. And, and, and Vend was the number one. That was the crazy thing. It, it, like I speak to retailers and I still speak to them now, long time Vend retailers. And they were like, you know, we had been waiting. This is what they were saying. We had been waiting many, many years for, for you to come along. Like this was an idea that, you know, we hoped existed years before you did it. Um, you know, because these were admittedly, they were probably more sort of the, you know, early adopter growth hacker type retailers. So young, younger retailers who were just starting out and, but you know, they used Gmail, you know, they used zero, they use other online tools. And so it just made perfect sense that their point of sale should be online as well. And, you know, so they were Googling around, it's like online POS, you know, oh, I've got an iPad, iPad POS. And it wasn't anything apart from Vend. And so, you know, we, uh, you know, we were, again, there's that word again, incredibly lucky. Um, but, but, but it was timing, just, yeah. it was timing and we executed really well and we had, you know, a great marketing team. Thanks Simon. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah. we told a great story and, you know, we built a really interesting brand around what we were doing, you know, because we knew what we were doing was different. We didn't want to be, we weren't trying to compete with the boring blue point of sale platforms. We, you know, wanted to embrace our heritage of being Kiwi, even though we weren't overtly Kiwi in, in, in our approach, but we didn't hide it. Um, uh, our values, you know, you know, the stuff that got us up in the morning um, and we wanted to have fun and we wanted to make sure that our retailers, the, you know, when they d- discovered us, that all was apparent. You know, they could see that we, you know, we were real people because that was the thing. It was like it's, it was an internet based business. Um and retail point of sale is something that you you need to have a lot of trust in because it's running your business, right? Um, so we wanted to make sure that retailers felt there were other people on the other side of the internet, that, you know, it wasn't just computers or engineers kind of sitting in a, in a basement somewhere who had written some cool software, um, that there was a passionate team behind it that really cared about retail. And yeah, we had a load of fun. And, and the way that you and Nick Holdsworth especially set the uh, set the tone and the brand and, and uh, you know, way before um, uh, other marketers came on board into the team. Like things like the PayPal video when you were a very, very small potential partner to PayPal and to, um, to show how, you, you know, with Vend you could take payments anywhere. Mm. You actually, they threw you out of a, you threw yourself out of a, out of a plane. And that kind of stuff of standing out. Um, yeah, I, I imagine not many of their partners were, throwing themselves out of planes yeah and and i want to do a shout out to nick holdsworth because you know employee number one if you're, you know, nick was one of the most pivotal people within vend because you know he just turned up to the office one day and he said i want a job because i i love what you're doing i think you're going to be the next zero you know i want a job what can i do and i was like well we got some emails from customers, you know, on the help desk that need answering. Can you do that? And that's what he did for, for years. Like he ran our support team. But what he wanted to do and what his passion was, 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 was doing marketing. And, uh, um, you know, and so kind of in, the, in our downtime when we weren't answering email tickets and when I wasn't writing code and doing kind of all the other things, we, um, we had this thing where um, like once a month on a Friday, we would dream up a crazy idea for a video and then we would just grab a phone or a video camera and just go out and, and shoot it. And yeah, one of those crazy ideas was we'd just, um, 
signed this partnership with PayPal um, to do some new innovative in-store um, payment tech with PayPal um, that would allow you to you know pay with your phone. So it was one of the first mobile payments in the world. And, uh, and so, you know, we were just sitting around having a beer and kind of talking through, you know, what's the craziest way that you could do a mobile payment? And I was like, well, you know, imagine if you could pay for your air, your flight whilst, you, whilst you're mid-air. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And I was like, well, what if you could pay for a parachute whilst you're in free fall? And so, and uh, and I think we, we, you know, probably had many beers at that stage. We were like, yeah, yeah, let's go do that. And then we'd like book these flights to Sydney because we had, one of our customers was a skydive school. So we dropped them an email. I was like, can we... Uh, see you on Monday, we're going to jump out of an airplane, we're going to do this thing. And they were like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, you know, we had no idea if it would even work. We didn't even know if you'd get cell phone reception whilst you were free-falling. Um, and, you know, we let PayPal know. It's like, we're going to do this thing. We're going to do the world's first um, mobile payment at, you know, 10,000 feet. And um, I don't even think we waited for them to respond. We were already in Sydney jumping out of airplanes. And, you know, we, we filmed it and, um, yeah, and uh, we just did it. We just had an idea uh you know a crazy idea just did it edited it together and then um and then shared it with the world and then um the ceo of paypal uh was sharing with everybody he knew he was sharing it at the company you know all hands meetings he was like look at what these crazy kiwis have done it's awesome do more of that (laughs) and so um that was pretty cool, you know. Um, you know, David Marcus was very much he's the he was the ex CEO of PayPal. He was a very much a, a pioneer and he, he understood how you engaged customers and he really loved our brand. How did you feel when you first got kind of you know, dealing with the CEO of PayPal? Like when, when did you know it was working? So customers were like were, were, were really excited and waiting for it and the the growth was going but yeah having being a small company still from New Zealand uh, still in a funny little shared office in Parnell and then coming up with these ideas that are working with the CEO of PayPal um, it, you know even eight years ago one of the bigger payments companies um, of the internet I think there's something special about New Zealanders is we don't let any of like you know we were dealing with you know CEOs of major internet companies you know we're dealing with senior people at google and apple and paypal and you know groupon and you name it and you know we would just rock into the boardrooms and sit down with these people and just act like it was no big deal like you know um peter teals you're one of our investors and i remember the first time I met him it was like you know he's just a guy he's just a guy who you know, maybe made some smart calls you know, he's probably a smart guy he is a smart guy um but he's no different to you or me um and i think uh, I think they really appreciate that because, and you know, um, we just we're just so flat here. Like there is no hierarchy. It's like you know, get a get a David. How's it going? Got this crazy idea for a video. Did you like it? Oh, awesome, mate! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's so refreshing. And we we should leverage that more and more as as New Zealanders. Um, you know, we're embarrassed of our accent, but you know, everybody loves the Kiwi accent because you know, I think that's probably changed maybe over the last twenty years. Um, you know, thanks to Flight of the Concords, Lord of the Rings, and, you know, all the other things that have given and helped raise New Zealand's profile. But don't pretend you're not a New Zealander because we have so much respect out there. And the fact that we just treat everybody like, you know, we're equals goes so, so far. It's so refreshing. Um, so, yeah, we didn't think about it. Um, we just, all we wanted to do was innovative stuff that would help retailers. Um and you mentioned Peter Thiel in there and through his uh, through a fund that he um, 
controlled or had a part in, they ended up um, being part of a big round that um, happened not long after I, I came on board at Vend. And it was at the time um, pro- probably the biggest private placement that New Zealand had seen. So that must have been a pretty amazing moment to, to close out a big round. Uh, yeah, I think it took a little while to sink in because uh, if you've been through a capital raise, it's it's pretty full on. Um, but yeah, we had a really awesome party <laughs> once <laughs> once we had the cash in the bank, um, and 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 you should celebrate that stuff. Like you know, I'm not you know not making light of um, you know raising a, tr- a, a, a truck ton of money. You know that stuff's you know it comes a lot of responsibility. But hell, you should also celebrate with your team. Like you know, I remember standing on a bar. Ordering everybody shots. <laughs> um, and the team loved it because, you know, like raising money is, is not a proxy for success. Mm. Actually, raising money just makes shit harder mm. because, you know, now you've got to actually go and apply that capital and, and get growth. Um, but, you know, for the team, it was, it was uh, you know, having an investor like Peter Thiel come on board was huge validation. It was like what we're doing is good. What we're doing is right. People are genuinely excited about what we're doing. So let's do more of it. Um, so yeah, that was, that was super cool. But then, you know, very quickly the reality was, okay, now we've got to deliver on, on, on what we promised. And so, you know, we need to speed up. And it's quite an interesting process, isn't it? Where the same skills and focuses that got you to be the product that was the product that all the customers needed are not the same focuses that a company then has to um, get into in order to scale up, get into new markets, work out different tax things, become compliant with all the laws you'd kind of ducked under because you were a startup and and, and making it up as you go and hiring people and getting leases and and operating across time zones. And it seems to happen with quite a few tech companies uh, that, that I've observed and from being you know in the Venn journey that a lot of that energy goes to the um, internal forces and gets drawn away maybe from the customer. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, so now, uh, you know, we, we were, oh, I've got to stop saying that word, lucky. You know, we had a great product mm. and our customers loved it. And now the problem became, how do we scale up? You know, how do we get the product to more and more customers all around the world? Um, so, you know, to do that, we needed people. And to do that, we need to spend more on, on marketing and, you know, build sales teams and, you know, open offices all around the globe and um, operations, operations, operations. Um, and at pace, like, you know, we we almost became obsessed about keeping our, you know, our, um, our exponential growth going. Um, and so, yeah, we and so we just focused on that um, and then started to focus less and less on the thing that got us there in the first place, which was the product. And so, you know, we were, we were becoming very good at hiring people and opening offices and getting process in place and, you know, firing people and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then maybe we weren't doing so well on the actual, the product innovation thing. Um, and it's, it's a thing that can kill startups. You know, uh, you get too obsessed around the, how you do things and growing and you you take your eye off the ball of the thing that actually made you successful in the first place which was you know a, whatever it is a fantastic service or a brilliant brilliant product um and it's okay like sometimes you take your eye off that ball because you've got other problems that you need to solve but at some point you got to get your eye back on that ball because you know what we saw whilst we were growing so was everybody else we had competitors who were you know being me too um copycats um and and other competitors coming from you know adjacent uh, markets and verticals, 
and you know they were starting to do the same thing we were doing um and so you know i was like shit you know how do we you know how do we make sure that we we keep ahead of them um and you know one way of keeping ahead of them is not to hire more people <laughs> in a way that slows you down because you know just the headache of having to find all these people and onboard them and and keep your culture alive and and all that stuff it just becomes all consuming and there was a moment there when there was a, a restructure and a reset. And I, I remember it was probably the period that of my working life that I've learned the most. It was so interesting. And the way that the company handled it, uh, looking after people when it didn't need to, incredible openness, um, was, was pretty amazing. Um, but it was interesting being on the inside and seeing, you know, media coverage and the way people kind of like who weren't maybe informed were talking about it and comments threads and stuff. And it, it showed me that, it doesn't matter kind of how much of a positive story you can be, things can still turn on you even if you're still doing your best and, and doing what you can. Well, that's all you can do is, is you know, go as fast and hard and, you know, and, and as well as you can and, and, and have the best intentions. Like, you know, we, we, we screwed up. You know, we, we accelerated too fast. You know, we, our plan was to follow that round from Peter Thiel with another capital round of roughly 18 months later. And that was all lined up, ready to go. And the mistake we made, well, the mistake I made was, you know, I'd always, this is the lesson I, I thought I'd learned from the Vionet days, which was like, you always have plan A and you have plan B and you have plan C and you have as many plans as you as you can conceivably come up with to make sure that you stay alive. Um, but because we'd been through this period where there was easy access to capital, I assumed that there would be, there would continue to be easy access to capital. And all the signals were there. We were talking to investors and, you know, because, you know, we were a darling and everybody wanted to come on board. Um, but then, you know, we, we screwed up. We picked, we picked the wrong horse. We picked the wrong investor to come on board for the next round. And at the 11th hour, you know, whilst we were going through due, due diligence, it was, you know, everything was set. We had the date for the cash. Um, they pulled out, which, you know, just screwed us. You know, totally screwed us over. Um, but we didn't have a plan B because, like, we'd put everything into that plan A. Um, and so then we had to very quickly come up with a plan B, you know, that involved locking ourselves literally in a room where we got the exec team together for, you know, for a couple of weeks. It's like, we need to come up with a plan B. We can't, you know, we can't let the team down. Um, we've got to keep this thing alive. Um, cause like literally, you know, I, I, you know, I can't a tell you and B remember <laughs> like how many, how many weeks or months of runway we had, but it was, you know, that war was uh, approaching really fast. Um, but this is where the culture that we had built saved us because like, you know, the exec team just bunk, you know, bunkered down in, in that room until we had come up with that plan. Um, we raised some money. We got some, uh, some more capital from our existing investors. So we very quickly came with a plan B, but that did involve having to shut one, one of our offices down and laying off a bunch of people. And, you know, that was you know, pretty gruesome time. Um, it was a pretty hard time. Um, but you know, it's, and this is the thing you know, for me, you know, not my first rodeo, but the, you know, it hadn't been through that too many times. Um, but since you know, chatting with other, uh, entrepreneurs, CEOs, founders of high growth companies, and they laugh at me, it's like, oh, oh, so you've got one of those stories as well. Oh my God, back in, you know, you know, 2015, we did the same thing. We had to do the same thing. And these are companies who from the outside looking, you know, looking in look like they're just on this amazing yeah. high growth 
journey with not making a, a single mistake. Yeah, the, the same year that you're named the fastest growing tech company in the country is the year that that happens, which is, you know, maybe those things are, are linked. It's that getting ahead is actually intrinsically part of um, finding yourself past past those points. Yeah, you, you find that, that point of elasticity where you feel, you realize that you, you just, you've pushed it too far. Um, and, you know, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's signs there that, you know, next time you make those things a little bit more apparent. I think for me, it was that lack of that plan B or going all in on plan A and abandoning all the other plans. And, and it was, it was from, from there, you know, that, that was a bit earlier than quite a few companies uh, that in the space hit that kind of fundraising wall. And then we saw it happen elsewhere. Um, but having built back from there and got back to a point where you've been able to successfully raise again and now have a very healthy uh, uh, company, <laughs> you know, you, yeah, like what, what if you, what, yeah, like how do you feel reflecting back on those days? Um, builds character, doesn't it? No, I'm just joking. That doesn't build character. It's terrible. You shouldn't go through those things. You should totally try to plan to avoid those things. Um, but, you know, I, I said it before, the culture that we had built got us through it. So not only did the exec team hunker down, the, the, the team, um, uh, you know, once we were, you know, we were incredibly transparent about it. Once we knew what the plan was and what we were going to do moving forward, we shared that with the team and we got them all on board and everybody was, all right, this is what we're doing. Um and uh, so I wouldn't change anything. I mean, obviously, apart from having that plan B, but, um, you know, I think having that strong culture, openness, transparency, even though, like you say, it doesn't matter how open and honest and transparent you are, people are always going to, you know, assume the worst and that you're hiding things or, you know, acting, you know, not in their best interests. Um, but there's no alternative. You just got to be good, decent human beings. Um, and, you know, we had to lay off a bunch of people, but we, you know, where possible, we found them new roles for them to move into. And it wasn't kind of like, oh, sucks to be you, see you later. It's like we cared passionately. Like I cared passionately. It hurt every single time that we had to let somebody go. It, you know, it, it hurt. Um, um, so, no, wouldn't change any of that. Like has it made me a better person? Maybe. I like to think I'm still the same person learned a few things it was quite interesting also um after getting things back on track and seeing through the the plan then stepping out of the ceo role and going into product and then the the um the way that you communicated that and um talked about the passing on of you know you start with all the hats and then you pass them off how was the and and that got a great response tell, tell us about that kind of the response you got to that move um yeah so um the realization for me was, um, you know, and some of the lessons I'd learned was, you know, to, in order to grow something big and to make it sustainable and to, you know, have that rapid uh, rate of growth, you need a bunch of skills, right? And the, the phase that we were in, so, yeah, so the realization was maybe we're taking our eye, two things, maybe we're taking our eye off the ball with the product and be... Uh, maybe we don't have the right skills to really scale this thing up, you know, cause I was trying to do all of the things. Um, and so the realization was, and this was the thing is like people say, it's like, do the thing that you're really passionate about, you know, being through this, you know, shitty period, um, really tough going, made me reflect on myself personally, you know, hadn't seen the kids in years. It's like, you know, uh, where, where is the, th- what area of the business is the thing I'm most passionate about and most worried about. And that was product, you know, 
uh, I wanted to make sure that we had sight of where we wanted to be in five years' time. We couldn't just rest on our laurels because everybody was basically doing what we were doing. We need to come up with some new ideas. And at the same time, we need to get somebody in who was you know, more energized about spreadsheets and growth and building, you know, taking apart the machine and you know, building a, a, a platform, you know, a business at scale. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, had that conversation with, you know, the investors and the board it was like, I think we need to bring somebody in who, uh, can help take Venn to the next level. And that would free me up to do the, the thing. Cause it was the thing like, I, I would always say to the, you know, to the board was like, we need, you know, I need to spend more time on product. Um, but it was never the thing that, um, that we ever made room for. Um, and so, yeah, we uh, put out a global search for the, uh, the next top CEO, um, you know, scoured the planet. And um, in the meantime, Alex, Alex Feller, uh, who was my CFO and, and uh, had previously been, you know, head of strategy at Vend, you know, I gave him the steering wheel. I was like, I need to go find the CEO. Um, can you run the ship? Um, like, you know, I'm sure he knows it now like it's no secret there was like it was also here i'm you know i'm going to test you on the you know on the on the helm and see see how well you do because i think you could be the guy who could step up to do this but you know had you know had an obligation to go out there and see if we could find the best of the best had lots of conversations with all sorts of amazing people from all around the world um but then realized the the next ceo was was sitting within the building um and so just you know, congratulations, Alex. And, and again, in a big market, this kind of thing is very common where a founder CEO takes a company up to, you know, a certain um, valuation and revenue kind of level and then maybe you get in different skills and they, they step out of roles. But in small markets, it's not as common because not so many companies get so big that you've suddenly got 200 plus people, five offices, five different this, that and the others, 50 partners and all the rest of it to, to worry about. Um, how did it feel to kind of having had yourself so kind of closely associated with Vend to to step out of the CEO role? And I guess it's something that yeah, there are, there aren't that many, there weren't that many um, versions of it in the local market, but now we've seen Rod Drury do it, and there are there are more people having done it now. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it's and um, uh, I've had lots of conversations with founders and CEOs who have made the exact same transition. It goes on all the time. Um, like I think, I think it happens and people just don't talk about it because um, I don't know why this is the thing I've been trying to figure out. It's like, why don't people uh, acknowledge these sorts of changes in the business? Because it makes perfect sense. Like, you know, Rod's just done it and it made, made perfect sense for zero frees him up to spend more time focusing on the product innovation stuff, which is clearly his passion. Um, and, you know, I can name, you know, a bunch of other New Zealand CEOs who have just recently done the same thing in the U S happens all the time. And there's the other, there's the other version, which is like bringing on a, uh, you know, it's kind of the Sheryl Sandberg model, which is you know, bringing on a solid COO to support the product based founder so that they can, you know, divert as much as their energy into the innovation side of things and have a steady pair of hands to run the, you know, run the ship. Uh, both are completely valid models. I think you just got to play to your strengths and, you know, follow your passion. If, uh, if you want to become a master of scaling a, a, a company, you know, and grow it from, you know, hundred people to a thousand people do that. You know, if that's what gets you up in the morning, totally do that. If it's not, don't do it, you know, find the thing that you, that, 
you know, that you can contribute the most to. Um, and don't get hung up on the, the title. Mm. Like, you know, like I say that, you know, and there, there is ego attached to it. And, you know, it was quite hard stepping out of the CEO role. But you'll always be founder. I'll always be founder. Nobody's going to take that title away from me. And sure, maybe I don't get to boss everybody around, which is actually <laughs> probably a good thing anyway. Um, but um, how hard was it? It was pretty hard. Being straight up, the last few years had to kind of very slowly unpick a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of my personal brand is attached to Vend. Um, and, you know, um, so, you know, unpicking all that as well. It's like, you know, I am not Vend. Vend is not me. You know, there's a new executive team who's running Vend now. And, you know, they're a different executive team that was there a few years ago. Um, Vend is its own thing. It's, I don't want to give you that analogy of, you know, raising a child, but it's, it's kind of that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and what, what did like um, t- taking that step out of having so many of those day-to-day responsibilities um, in, in, in the executive kind of role, what did that allow you to kind of step into outside of Vend as well? Because OMG Tech had been something that, um, that, that you were able to kind of get up around that time? Yes. So I got to see more of my kids, mm. which was really important to me. Um, uh, and um, I got to uh, pay back that massive favor that mum made for me when I was 10. I, my mum passed away on, I think, year two of the Vend journey. Um, and so... You know, and one of the reasons I did Vend was because I always wanted to build my own you know, software company to prove to mum. It's like, you know that computer you bought? You know, this is what it's led to. And, um, and so I never really got that opportunity. And um, uh, so I th- sat on that for a couple of years thinking, um, what should I do in, in mum's name, um, if anything? And then um, the idea came. It's like, you know what? You know, I can't repeat that same gesture for, for another kid because, you know, we've all got computers in our pockets. But then I thought, well, what's the, you know, what is the, what is the equivalent of the PC in the 80s today? You know, and, it's, and it was things like VR and drones and robotics and 3D printers and whatever that next crazy bit of technology is. Those are the things that, you know, are going to be the game-changing devices and technology that the 10-year-olds, you know, in another 10 years' time, they're going to be the things that they're going to be innovating and, and building, you know, the next big companies with. So that's where the idea came from. It's like, well, okay, well, let's just get all the all of them, all of the 10-year-olds in New Zealand, um, and then connect them up with cool gadgets and, and technology and show them how it all works. So they first of all, they see it's not, you know, it's not too scary and, you know, any kid can do it. Like, honestly, any kid can do this stuff. Um and then let them go. It's like, just let them play with the technology and see what, see what they come up with. Um, and so, yeah, we've been doing that for three years now. Um, and we've, you know, kind of, a, we've been through, we've been running it like a startup. First of all, we wanted to prove product market fit. Do kids want to play with robots? Yes. All right. <laughs> Step two, how do we scale this thing up? Um, and uh, what we quickly realized was that the kids weren't the problem. Kids naturally gravitate towards technology and they're really curious they want to understand how it works and what they can do with it it's the parents and the teachers that were the problem because uh you know they didn't it was all crazy foreign stuff and and this is the thing that surprised me is like teachers and parents didn't think there was a future for their kids with technology and it's like seriously how do you not think that your kid could grow up to become a technologist for a start and second of all do you, have you noticed what's happening out there? It's like everything is becoming driven by technology. So literally every job that they're going to grow up to do is going to be heavily reliant on technology. Wouldn't you rather that they 
kind of had a leg up and actually understood how to use it. Um, and so then we very quickly realized that um, we needed to work with the parents and the teachers to demystify it, and um, in particular teachers, because they're, you know, um, we've been working with the Ministry of Education for the last couple of years on getting this stuff into classrooms. Like, how do we teach computer science in the classroom? But in a way, it's not like here's binary and here's an algorithm, like in an engaging way that kids actually, you know, want to engage with it. Um, and so, you know, uh, just recently, the the uh, the Ministry of Education announced that computer science needs to be in the curriculum and taught in schools in 2020, which is cool. Awesome. Um, but now we've got, uh, you know, a bunch of teachers all around the country freaking out because now they have to teach technology to a bunch of 10 year olds who probably know more about it than they do. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we're focusing on now is how do we empower teachers so that they feel confident with this stuff and they can teach it in a fun and engaging way. Um, and it's a really cool problem to solve. That, that's magic. And then right at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, from ch- children to the people who are, you know, right at the top of the industry, uh, you got more involved with the high tech trust and the awards have just been and that theme of diversity that, um, you, you know, it was quite a brave step to take uh, with the high tech awards because having been to a few, diversity is not the first expression that comes to mind when you think about the attendees but to actually like force the industry to take a step forward and start thinking and showing and proving what they're doing about diversity um how how did that work out well yeah it wasn't just the high tech awards i think it was every pretty much every business awards that you'd go to would be full of you know middle-aged white men you know um slightly graying taking all the you know the glass trophies um and yeah it was like after having been to a number of those and, you know, pointing that out to people, it's like, you know, where are all the women? Um, I'm pretty sure women run businesses and I'm pretty sure women are innovative and I'm pretty sure, you know, women, you know, do all this stuff. Why aren't they up there represented on stage? Um, and it's, you know, started to agitate it a bit, um, you know, in, in a positive way. Um, didn't want to, you know, go around throwing stones at people. Um, and I can't remember the which awards it was, but I went up to the organizer and was like, here's some ideas like, you know, um, you don't have to force the industry to be diverse because the industry is, is what it is. If it's not diverse, it's not diverse, but you should encourage, you should lead by example and, you know, be the change that you want to see. So maybe at the awards, you know, don't have, you know, a bunch of scantily clad women holding the trophies and don't have all the speakers being men, you know, and, um, you know, invite, you, you, you know, invite the guests to bring a diverse bunch of people to their tables, you know, to represent the diversity of the organizations. Cause chances are they probably have a bit of it. Um, anyway, so, but, you but know, they, but they are the young people in the organization and that's what you did at event. You said, Hey Simon, get, get a bunch of interesting people you'd never see at the awards along. And so we brought along a bunch of 22 year olds and we all had a great time. It makes uh, the night so much more entertaining as well. We were the only table there that was having such a great time. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I started agitating around the fridges in a positive way about, you know, the sorts of changes that you could do to help encourage diversity. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Wayne, Nori from the High Tech Trust, who runs the High Tech Awards, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "Hey, how would you like to come on board and and you know help us out?" And so, um, so you know, been on the the board there for a couple of years, and then Wayne stepped down as chair, and and Jen Rutherford stepped up to be chair, and she she asked if I would you know back her up and be vice chair, and I said, "Absolutely, you're an inspirational lady. Um, anything I can do, I'd, I'm 
I don't know what I'm competent at doing, but anything I can do to help, I, I will. And, um, you know, it's been mainly Jen leading the charge. But we, you know, for the last two years, we, you know, we, you know, the, the board of trustees on the trust is, you know, we, we got that a good diverse uh, mix and um, we started a whole bunch of programs. So it's not just about gender, it's about, you know, um, equality of race and um, and also regional representation. Innovation doesn't just happen in Auckland. It kind of happens everywhere. Who would have thought? Um, and um, and so set up a bunch of programs on how we would, you know, do things better, talk to a lot of people, and then decided we'll make the theme for the 2018 awards diversity of thought. And we would encourage, you know, uh, all of the companies who entered, well, actually we made it a criteria of, of entering. You, know, so you had to talk about what you were doing about diversity within your organization or how did you celebrate diversity. So we wove it into the criteria. We talked to all our sponsors. You know, We encouraged them to you know, have speakers who are a bit more diverse. And we changed it. We, we almost changed everything. Um, but all centered around, hinged around that idea of like, how do we celebrate diversity? How do we be the change we want to see? Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so the awards were Friday night and I have to admit, cause even though I'm vice chair, I don't get to see who the, who the winners are. I was nervous. Like I was like, after all this effort, it was like, Oh shit. What if, <laughs> what if it's just another bunch of white guys up on stage winning all the awards again? Mm. Um, but actually we got, you know, we were halfway through the awards night and there wasn't a single white guy on stage. <laughs> it was, you know, there was uh, Maori innovators and women and it was like, oh my God, maybe we've gone too far. <laughs> maybe we need to in- in- get some more white guys up on stage because, you know, we've kind of gone, a- gone the other direction. But, you know, we didn't, we didn't do anything. We just encouraged the industry to, to do things. And, and then what do you know? The diversity starts to happen. Like I'm, I'm sure, if you looked under the hood, the numbers are still, you know, these this, the senior leadership teams, the boards are, are still probably full of middle-aged white guys. But at the grassroots level and yeah. how organisations are thinking about things, that's changing. That's changing. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was such a cool night. Yeah, there, there, there are waves building to break, but they're at different stages and in different industries and in different sectors. So, you know, in, engineering is is perhaps still a real challenge area but in lots of other areas inside tech companies you'll see that there's better representation but there are still those yeah but unless you are being the the change that you want to see where does it begin it's got to start somewhere and and you can go around attacking you know companies for having non-diverse boards or you know exec teams who you know you know um but it's just not helpful you know you need to create these environments where organizations feel like they can change they feel like they're not going to be attacked. They feel like they can make. Sometimes they just need a you know a bit of a, a a guiding hand to give them some suggestions of of the ways that they could change. Like I don't think anybody argue would argue with the, you know the idea that diversity makes things better. You know it makes you just you know all of your decisions better if you know especially if you're a product company. Chances are your users of your product aren't middle aged white guys. Um, so it's actually better if the people building the product a bit more representative of your target market. Um, you know, that just makes sense. That, that idea of being the change you want to see is a real through line to the impossible challenges as well, that uh, one of those impossible challenges was when you rode the bike and thought about uh, what would become Vend. But you've carried them on doing them every year. And, you know, some have been giving up drinking or um, stopping watching rugby, stopping watching the news, which are two really interesting ones. And then you've, you've told those stories through the TED talk, uh, the TEDx talk, where you talked about how 
you know, you can make impossible things happen. It's kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a paraphrase of it. T- t- tell me about kind of that journey and, and, and how that's part of your life. Yeah, it almost started happening by accident because I don't know what's wrong with me, but, you know, I, I decide once I put my mind to something, then I just go do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it started realizing that I had this uh, obsession with rugby and was, you know, I'm also a little bit obsessive compulsive. So, you know, once, when I do something, I, I do it. Um, and I'd been, you know, realized I'd been filling up my life with a little bit too much rugby. Um, and so it just started there. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go cold Turkey. I'm not going to watch rugby. Going to give it a break for a year. Just see what happens. And then, you know, it was really hard, but I did it. And then I was like, oh, well, that was interesting. I wonder what else I could stop doing or start doing. And so um, what was next? Um, I quit being a consumer for a year. I was like, you know, without, you know, other than the essentials like food and things like that, didn't buy any new clothes or toys or gadgets or cars or anything for a year, which again was quite hard. But, you know, actually realized it was actually ultimately quite easy. Um, then it's like, well, I'll quit drinking for a year. That one was hard. Um, just because of all the social stigma around, you know, just alcohol is such a big part of our culture. And if you start turning up to events and you, you're not drinking, then people think you're an out recovering alcoholic. Um, I was like, no, I just wanted to, you know, have a change. Um, cycled the length of New Zealand, ran a thousand kilometers. Uh, just recently cycled around the Southern hemisphere in 80 days. Um, I don't know where I come up with these ideas. I just like, it, it just became a thing. And then I decided that every year I'd pick something that I thought was impossible that I'd never, ever be able to do. Like when I was that fat guy, you know, riding the length of New Zealand, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. But you know, I was like, well, I know how to ride a bike. So I'm pretty sure I could survive, you know, six weeks on a bike. What could possibly go wrong? Um, and we just put up all these mental barriers all the time. And we think, you know, things, things, things are impossible. We use that word a little bit too liberally. You know, um, one of the most fun ones was learning how to sing. I set a challenge to learn how to sing, um, and I had to get a paid gig in front of 100 people. That one was by far the scariest out of all of them because I couldn't sing. And just, you know, I was an okay public speaker, but the thought of standing up in front of 100 people and singing, and not just like a song, but singing an entire set, you know, uh, for, an, for an hour on stage, scared the shit out of me. Um, that one was by far the hardest, but you know, I just broke it down. I was like, well, I should get, probably get, um, singing lessons. Actually, you know, Nick Holdsworth bought me singing lessons for my birthday. <laughs> he was like, you got, you're so screwed. <laughs> I'm buying you singing <laughs> lessons. Um, and then, you know, um, and, and I was feeling kind of confident about it. And then, you know, a month out from the gig, I decided I'd take it up a level and I was like, you know what, I'm going to crowdsource the set list. <laughs> because <laughs> I couldn't decide what songs I wanted to sing. I was like, I'll let the internet decide. And so you know, anybody who came along and bought a ticket could vote on a, a song that they wanted me to sing. Um, or you could pay a bit more and you could choose a song. Um, and that just, and I think that was, that, that made it less scary because then suddenly I wasn't in control anymore because like other people were choosing the set list. And if they were impossibly you know, difficult songs, I would give it a crack and prove that it's not impossible. I may suck a little bit, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, and yeah, it was the most fun evening I've, I've had in a very, very, very long time. Um, you know, I, you know, but it's the thing is like, if you just decide to do it, 
do something and put your mind to it, then you'll find that a lot of these things are actually not impossible. Just really fucking hard, um, but definitely not impossible. And, um, you know, I like to think that, you know, I, I, honestly, I, I did this to be a role model for my kids. Like I want them to grow up not, not thinking that, you know, I've got two daughters. I want them to think that they can grow up to be anything they want to be. If, you know, if they want to fly, you know, if they want to, uh, you know, fly to the moon, they can fly to the moon. Um, what's stopping them, right? You know, um, oh, it's getting all kind of deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's and and we've, we've talked a little bit about the advice you, you, you do give to entrepreneurs in there. But I think, you know, out of those kind of questions that we normally ask, maybe as a final thought, like, do you have words you live by? Do you have um, yeah, things you come back to or things you tell yourself when things get hard or things that, you know, you, you reflect on? Yep. Get lots of sleep. Eat well. Hydrate. <laughs> wear sunscreen. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. All that stuff. No, look after yourself. Honestly, look after yourself. Um, uh, you know, I tell young, young and entre- old entrepreneurs, new like entrepreneurs, new entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, it's a ten-year journey. If you want to build something really epic, it's going to take you ten years to do that. Um, so don't, you know, you know, twenty-hour days is heroic. You know, twenty-hour days for five years is insanity. You know, look after yourself. Like, um, don't be in a rush to burn yourself out. Just pace yourself. Sure, there'll be times where you need to like go all in and, and, you know, you just need to do whatever you need to do and there'll be long weeks and, you know, sleepless nights. But make sure you find the time to uh, spend quality time with the other people in your life. I think that's probably it, actually, if I think about it, is make sure you spend time with, you know, the people that are important to you because your ideas will may crash and burn and your businesses, you know, may flop. Um, but you want to make sure that your friends and family are still there um, at the other, at, at the other side. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it doesn't, doesn't require a lot making sure that you keep your weekends to, you know, go and have some fun, exercise, eat well. God, I'm starting to sound like my mum. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's a lovely loop back to the beginning then. Well, thank you very much for um, coming and talking. Yeah. So, so honestly about the, the journey and the, the ups and the downs and, yeah, look forward to seeing the next Impossible Journeys. Thank you, Vaughan Russell. Thank you. Thank you also, Alice Webladell, for producing. And thank you very much for having us along and listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.